Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. And today I'm really eager to introduce you all to our guest because she is somebody that I feel truly embodies the spirit of this show. She is someone that I admire and I'm looking forward to sharing this time together, learning more about her expertise and experiences as a fourth generation shrimper, author, and activist who is actually, she's currently on a 20, on day 28 of a hunger strike on Lavaca Bay, and she is connecting with us from her truck. So we are getting to experience some activism in action today. Diane Wilson, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you betcha. I, I like uh, getting the word out, so this is real fun. <laughs> so I'm really interested in, in hearing about how the hunger strike is going, but I'd actually like to start off by getting to know you and the area that you're in a little better, um, mainly because I feel like being a part of a family and that is has generations of shrimpers is a pretty unique and special experience. So will you tell me more about your family history and what it's like being a part of something that spans beyond just yourself and across generations? Oh, absolutely. I uh, Well, first of all, I always like to say is my family has been around uh, this parts on the mid-Texas Gulf Coast uh, for about 130 years. As a matter of fact, they uh, they came from a little island out in the bay. And actually, they used to call it an island, but actually it was a peninsula. And it was uh, Blackjack Island. And uh, that's where my folks were uh, fishermen. Back in the day, they were mainly fishermen, you know, like uh, – uh, with with gillnets, and they would catch uh, black drum and redfish and trout and things like that. And uh, and my my grandpa always told me he said when the price of shrimp became two cents a pound, he moved to sea drift. And and like I said, uh, I've got uh, 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 four generations, and every one of them they've been uh, fin fishermen. They've been shrimpers. They've been uh, oystermen, and uh, and in my family is like uh, where I grew up. I was born and raised in Seadrift, and my uh, the entire family was centered around the bay and the fish house and the boats. I mean, your boat was the most important thing in your family, and I dare say. Every fisherman that ever died had a picture of his boat in the coffin with him. That's how <laughs> well loved your boats were. And uh, I started shrimping with my dad. Uh, and and I might mention that I'm talking about bay shrimpers. I'm talking about uh, mainly family fishermen. Uh, they would uh, go out early in the morning. Sometimes we would leave as early if we wanted to get to a far bay say like Mesquite Bay, we'd leave at like four in the morning and it took a couple hours to get where you were going. And uh, so you would go out early, but you came in early. And, you know, uh, in the spring you would come in at midday and when you were out catching the big fall, the big white shrimp, uh, you could stay out. You know, I remember as a kid is you didn't even have supper until your dad came in from shrimping. And sometimes that was like 10 o'clock at night. And so it was totally normal to have supper at 10 o'clock at night. And it was, you waited on your dad. And so I was uh, fishing, uh, shrimping on, on my dad's boat probably since I was eight years old. And mainly uh, when you're a, a fisherman and, and trust me, they didn't make a heck of a lot of money is the, uh, one of the best routes and cheapest routes to, to have a deckhand because uh, a, a deckhand could get a uh, what they call uh, a clear fifth or a dirty uh, fourth. And uh, 
and a dirty fourth means it was a pretty bad fourth. And uh, they would they would use their kids. And so I, <laughs> uh, I started working with my dad, and I had uh, 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 two other sisters that went out at the same time. And um, and I think I was the best at it because, you know, when when you when you start when you're dragging a net and you're turning the boat into the wind, your boat feels like it's almost turning over. And my sisters would start crying. They thought the boat was going to turn <laughs> over, and I was exhilarated by it. I loved it. And so, uh, you know, when I was 24, I got my first oyster boat. And by the, I mean, not oyster boat, crabbing. I crabbed for a couple of years. And when I got about 27, I had my, uh, uh, the CB, it was my shrimp boat. It was 42 foot long and I dearly loved that boat and, uh, had a 671 engine and, and I went out by myself on it because generally the way it goes is if you put a man on board, they try to take over the wheel and so I always went out I was I was one of those uh captains that didn't have a deck in and I and I liked it it was a lot quieter it was a lot less arguing and you just stay real focused and and like I said the entire day it, it was like a celebration not where, where I was from, we had like five shrimp houses, and 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 going down there, I mean, there would be shrimpers dragging out nets, dragging out cable. They were uh, patching nets in the middle of the road. They were going all over and talking to each other on boats. They were checking out the fish houses and telling some big lies, most likely. But uh, <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, it was and. That's where it was. It was at the base. So my identity after all these years, and I'm 72, and people ask me what I am, and it's like, I'm a fisherwoman. You know, that's who I am. Yeah, you know, I've I've personally never been to Lavaca Bay, and I imagine there are many listeners out there that also have not. Will you describe the area, you know, like where is it, and are there any unique or special features or really anything that you you'd like to share that will paint a picture of the area in our minds that can serve as like a, a placeholder until we can all hopefully visit and experience this place in person someday. Well, Lavaca Bay is actually, when you look at it from a distance, it's, it's really a beautiful bay. You know, there's a big long causeway that goes over Lavaca Bay from you're going from Port Lavaca and you're headed for Point Comfort and you go over this causeway and you're passing over upper and uh, lower Lavaca Bay and it's you look out at the water and it looks gorgeous and then you start to get a little closer and you see right in front of you this massive length of uh Decayed and abandoned uh, uh, alumina bauxite refineries, mercury superfund sites, huge uh, landfills with toxic waste, and a 2,500 acres of of a petrochemical plant that you know was recently you know fined and was told they were serial polluters. So it's so it's it's got this this definite contradiction and, and where I'm sitting you know I bet I'm uh bet I'm three foot from the water and it was blowing so hard the other day that I had the wind it was going through the windows it was going over the hood and I know this man he, he came along just to see me and he said girl you better wash that car when you get home or it's gonna be a a, ru a rust bucket and that it's so much salt water but uh <laughs> So here I am sitting and I can see uh, Alcoa that is abandoned now and there is a Mercury Superfund site and I've got three big, huge, uh, 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 big, uh, uh, what do you call them? Those big things sticking out in the water and they say 
don't eat the fish, don't eat the crabs, and it's in Spanish and Vietnamese and English. And uh, a little further on one side is a big lagoon like an island, and that's a mercury lagoon that is full of mercury, and they they co- they did a cover on it by just putting clay on the top of it. And right in front of me is a taco truck. So, <laughs> that's where I'm at, but it's uh, Lavaca Bay is a part of the bigger Matagorda Bay. And Matagorda Bay, in uh, I'm trying to think, like 1928, it, there was more shrimp imported out of this bay than any place in the United States. So it was very, very productive, and um, there had fishermen there that was doing well. There were fish houses, there was a picking plant. There was there was all kinds of uh, fishermen here, you know, just like in Sea Drift. There were five fish houses, and and now it's all gone. It is all gone, and it's and it's you know there's certain things, I mean, really elemental to your life. You never see them just vanish in your lifetime. And it, and I saw it vanish in my lifetime. Yeah, and I understand that this is not your first hunger strike. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to know more about, you know, was there like a specific issue or moment that called you to action to really like – motivate you to fully step into a role as, as an activist? Uh, yeah, well, well, the, well, the, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, by nature, an introvert. I mean, I'm one of those real introverts, you know, you miss a meeting and it's like, thank God I got to miss that meeting. It's like, I'm that <laughs> and, and so I am not a natural at this. I am not a natural a leader and speaker and it's like I never talked and I matter of fact the first six years of elementary school uh, I had to go to speech because I I stuttered so I just did not like talking and uh, but when I was running a fish house and like I said I did all kinds of stuff ran boats I've uh, uh, ran fish houses I've I'm the best thing net patcher in this whole county i bet you the whole texas gulf coast i i would put myself up against anybody i'm i'm pretty good but anyway <laughs> so i've did uh, a lot of stuff but when i was running a fish house i had one of these shrimpers that had three different types of cancers and he had i mean he was a handsome a really handsome shrimper and he had like lumps like tennis balls all over his arm and he had cancer and uh Anyway, he came in the fish house and he pitched a uh, newspaper article at me. And it was the first time the toxic release inventory ever was made public. And it was that was when industry had to report for the first time the emissions they were putting out, like into the air, to the water, to landfills, injection wells, what they were trucking out. And this tiny little old bitty county i mean i don't know a thing we're known for and and here we were number one in the nation i mean it like it like blew my mind it's like how could this tiny county that is real rural very few i, I bet at that time we only had like twelve thousand people in the entire county and it's like how could we be number one? And especially is how could you be number one in the whole United States and not know mm. a thing about it? And it was, it was, it was incredible. You know, it was like shocking. And so I acted totally out of character and I just went down to the uh, city hall and told them I wanted to have a meeting and I wanted about, this thing in the paper. <laughs> so that's where it started. And it's been rolling like a steam ball for 30 years. So I've been, so that's where it started actually. Yeah. And so, you know, as someone that is, is just 
fully immersed in this area. You, you know, you grew up there, you work there, you know, the water, like the back of your hand and you're starting to see, you see all these changes and how, you know, human interaction and climate are affecting the water, the people that live in the area and the fisheries. Um, you know, are, are there things that stick out to you that have changed over time that um, are really concerning? Like what are, how have things changed over time in your experience living and working there? Well, it's a, a terribly alarming. And matter of fact, it's, it's so it's like industry is quadrupled and it's all over the place. And it's like the only thing they want to talk about is bringing more industry in and more pipelines in and more, uh, uh, you know, uh, LNGs or salt uh, uh, desalination plants, or they want to bring in export. All of, it's, that's what it is constantly. And when the fishery disappears, I mean, I don't remember whether it was the county judge or I don't remember which one of those local politicians said it, but it's like we just wipe our hand out of the fishermen and we invest in industry. And it's like they have totally given up on the fisheries and it's like uh we're going to invest in this and and the cost the trade-off it's never brought up and the cost and the trade-off of that bay i mean it becomes a a a very dirty tool they use for that bay, and it makes me furious it just makes me furious yeah you know what a heartbreaking thing too to give up what sounds like the heart and soul and the culture of that area for, you know, what it sounds like is, is a paycheck and money. I'll bet all it is. You know, I had a, I was sitting out here on this. A matter of fact, I don't know if y'all hear it, but it's nonstop uh, industry traffic. I call, call that road, the energy corridor. <laughs> and, and sometimes I get the strangest people. And I had this uh, uh, oil man, he came over and he just, you know, I guess he just wanted to talk and spill his soul, but he said he was, uh, he said, I'm actually an environmentalist, but he said, I am the worst hypocrite in the world. And he kept saying, I am the worst. I am the worst. And he said, because I gave up what I believe in for money. He said, that's what I did it for. And he was, uh, so he was a very conflicted oil man. And, you know, and he said, he was probably going to retire in a few years and he had a million dollar benefit package coming his way. And he was like, it showed me up. There was a huge white tank full of crude oil from the Permian Basin. He said, you see that? I've got a 10% interest in that. And it's like, you know, and, and then here he was. And then he showed me, he, he went and got his phone and he started flipping through the pictures and he says, I have five years worth of oil spills. And he said, they're all lo local and they happen all the time. He said, uh, wow. all companies do not like uh, to do paperwork and they don't like losing control because when you bring in a environmental service to do cleanup, he said the oil companies, the pipeline companies, they, they lose control. And so they don't report it. And, and he had five years worth of them, you know, and they were, uh, I remember one he, he showed me and he said it had been leaking for six months. It was a huge oil all the way around this pipe. It was dead, dead grass, dead trees. And right in the middle of it was a dead donkey that had died. And uh, and then he said the probably the biggest um, cover up, spill cover up they had did was 4,000 barrels. And that's a little sick. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, Whoa, you know. Yeah, I mean that's amazing that he he opened up to you like that. I'm sure he's not the only one that works in in that field that feels conflicted and probably deals with mental health issues to to have a big yeah. paycheck. But you know, I I think that if we can get more people like him to speak out, like those are those are the voices and the stories that that we really need to be hearing so yeah. i appreciate you sharing that with me oh yeah and the thing that is is uh you know i'm a commercial fisherwoman you know and mm -hmm. i don't know anything about 
plant workers, but it has become plant workers who are the allies I work with. And so, matter of fact, when I did, when I did that big uh, thing with uh, with Formosa, you know, the pellets and all that, I mean, who mm-hmm. was out there helping me get the pellets? It was <laughs> shift supervisors. It was uh, uh, foremans in their wastewater system. And it was like they had spent 25 years out there and uh, they had had enough. They had seen enough damage. They had been damaged enough. And... Uh, and we were a very unlikely uh, co-patriots, but we were. And that's still who. Uh, matter of fact, right in front of me now is two workers with three dogs. And they're just waiting until I get off this phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk more about that Formosa, the what happened there for people that might not be familiar with that. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, I've, I've been doing this for like 30 years and probably for the last 10, uh, I had a, just started with a, a worker who, uh, who who called me up and uh, said he wanted to talk to me, except he had been a whistleblower. He had been fired from most of for being a whistleblower. And so he was an extremely cautious and suspicious guy. And so he wanted to talk to me, but he wanted to talk to me like uh, in a beer joint. 40 miles away. So, so here I did. I went 40 miles away to this beer joint in the middle of the day. And there was this guy in a cowboy hat sitting in a far corner. Nobody else was in that beer joint. And when I went in, you know, I always carry a, a big bag over my shoulder. And he really mm-hmm. wanted to check out my bag. And he dumped everything out on the table because, you know, he was suspicious. He thought I had a wire on me. And, uh, it took a while. It's like you're, um, it sounds like you're describing a scene in a movie. <laughs> and it really was. That's the way it was. It was. And he dumped them out. He was, and even the next time when he felt a little bit more, he felt a little bit more um, uh, uh, feeling like he could talk to me. Even when he came to my house, which is, was a trailer, he came in the house and he proceeded to check the lights. He proceeded to check underneath the table and he stuck a gun that was in a red velvet case. I mean, here you got this big old cowboy and cowboy this and cowboy that about six, three. And, and here he is. He's got a little revolver <laughs> in a red velvet like a, like a little <laughs> old girl will take to to school and he just sit it right there on the table it's like okay he, he, you know he meant to uh, let me know he was watching me and uh that's intense the, yeah <laughs> over the years he's you know he's gradually but he's they're all very very cautious because uh formosa is uh, is known far and wide. You can you can check the activists, the citizens in Taiwan, the ones in Vietnam, the ones in in uh, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the ones in Delaware, and Formosa retaliates. That's what they've got a history of doing. So so anyway, basically, a uh, uh, long story on that my story I was going on. Uh, we started. He told me about the pellets. And so we, we couldn't get any agencies to do anything. So we uh, just started collecting them on our own. And, we, and at first, we didn't know anything about it. You know, we just started waiting. And uh, there's probably a 20-mile area around here. And we just waited on the shores. And, and then you, it starts to dawn on you how, how they show up and how the, what the wind's doing. And so with a certain type of wind, you can go there and there are these pellets. And then I found out about uh, all of Formosa's stormwater outfalls. And that's where they, you really see a landmine is because uh, Formosa's got really, well, they're really poor about handling their pellets. So they're pretty much everywhere. And I think Formosa even admitted they had uh, lost them since production began, which was 26 years and never reported them. And TCQ never uh, bothered to uh, uh, check them in their in their violations. And so, I when I, I took a kayak and I started going down the the, the creek and uh, 
and I checked every one of their outfalls and pellets, 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 pellets. And so we collected in two and a half years, and it was almost daily for two and a half years, 2,500 bags of evidence and over, it's probably around 8,000 photos and videos. And we found Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. Uh, Lo and behold, I can't believe we were that fortunate to find them because uh, they took the case on. We filed a citizen suit and uh, I think the the trial was divided up in two sections. You could either you do whether they're liable and then you do if they are liable, then you have penalty. And uh, and the judge (laughs) ruled that Provoso was a serial offender and that their their uh their violations were enormous and repeated and chronic and it's like and i think after that alcoa i mean for most it did not want to go back to that judge again so uh they wanted to settle with us and we said 50 million and we wanted zero discharge and believe it or not mm-hmm. they sit down and they agreed they signed off on it and you know, not only got that, we got we got cleanup, we got monitoring, and we got where you could uh, look at the facility and see what was wrong, and we could help make choices about fixing that plant so it was zero discharge. So it was, oh, and the other thing is we, we got to put that 50 million into environmental projects in our community. I mean, we got to pick them. Every one of them we picked. And uh, we also had enough money left over. We've been giving uh, every year, ever so often we give uh, these big uh, research grants to people to come and do studies out here. So, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I still have a hard time believing it. You know, it's, you don't often get a a, 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 a a court case where they hear you and they see you and mm-hmm. they're willing to make that type of uh, a strong statement. It was like, I was totally astounded, totally. Yeah, it's it's moving. Honestly, listening to this story, I'm like, I just feel like just I feel so many emotions. I think it's so amazing that you all as a community came together. And and I think it's really important to hear this for listeners out there and for me, who it's so easy sometimes to feel like like a big oil and gas company or plastic producer or any, anything like that. Like they seem like they're so big and you can't defeat them. And how are you going to like confront them as an individual? But hearing these experiences of communities coming together and standing up for what they believe in and calling someone out that's doing something wrong and harmful for the area that they're in and in winning and, you know, holding people accountable. It's just, it's amazing. Yep, that's real. I think it's real important when people feel that they can make people uh, accountable because, you know, and, and, and you got little communities like this, as these industries have such a powerful hold and a footprint. You know, they have mayors working for them, they have had senators working for them, they have had all number of all these really close. Uh, uh, connections, you know, they buy them police cars, they buy them defibrillators, they buy them whole computer systems. You know, I, I remember when I had a, uh, he was actually head of security at Formosa, and he was noticing the high turnover rate and also that it was, the the contract was really high. And so he sat down and figured, you know, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, and if Formosa takes does their own security. I mean, like, oh, the thousands of money that you could save. And so he sent it to New Jersey and the response he got was, uh, uh, this contractor is a 
uh, a representative in Austin, and we do not want to upset him. Keep as is. Mm. And, and so he came back. When he saw that, he went to the plant manager and uh, and said, we are bribing a senator. You can't do that. And the, mm. the, the guy at the time, I won't say his name, but he, he said, he said, how many how many uh, copies of that do you have? And he said, I got one, and I just gave you one. And then he said, uh, he stood up and said, I can arrange to have you dead. And, uh, wow. and the guy, he said, at one time he used to be a, he was a helicopter pilot. He had been in the uh, military, and he said, I was not scared of anything. He said, but I got so scared in that office. I almost cried. And then, so he got in his car, his truck, and he went and talked to the DA and the other guy, the plant manager or high upper, went to uh, the sheriff's department and uh, and he asked the, uh, the DA, district attorney, he said, this is, uh, there was a threat against my life and this company is, uh, is, uh, you know, it's buying off a senator. And uh, the DA told him, he said, we can't do anything. They're buying us a computer system. And so that was it. I mean, nothing, nothing came of it. And so what, what Formosa did was they stuck him in a back office to do nothing. That was their way of containing him until they could figure out what to do with him, you know? Wow. So, I mean, and you would not believe the amount of stories I got like that. Man, I know. I'm like, we should have we sh- we should just have you on as like a regular guest where you tell you like we can dive deep. We can like dive deeper into each one of these. <laughs> but I want to make sure that we have uh, that we've got time to talk about the the hunger strike that you're on now. And so you're on day 28. How, and just how is it going? How is how are you feeling? How are you doing? Uh, I am. Uh, uh, I I have. I have determined that uh, a hunger strike is uh, is very is very spiritual, and it's not just your body, but it's your intention, and it's your heart. And I truly believe it's like I, it's like I figured out a key to the universe is that if you put your intention far out there, I mean not cozy, I mean out there where you're uncomfortable. And your heart and intention is it. I believe you can change things. I really do. You know, and I've been on a hunger mm-hmm. strike eight times. And I have seen, my mind's been blown on how sometimes these things just come out and you're like, wow, you could not have planned them if you w- ever wanted to. I mean, it's like the stuff that can come out of it. So, um, but, I, but I do believe uh, there's a spiritual element and you know and i'm a bit of a mystic myself so uh for some reason i can do this i don't know how but you know maybe it's my upbringing maybe the water and i really do i i sincerely believe that this hunger strike has been the best sight i've ever had a hunger strike and uh i feel like that they gives me something. I feel like she's alive, you know? She was alive when I was mm-hmm. a child. I remember, I remember her. And uh, she like uh, gives me some type of energy. So I, I feel surprisingly well. I definitely appreciate that and connect with that. I, I, I'm very much a, a believer in every living thing has its energy. And if, if we if we just listen, you know, everything has its own way of communicating with us. And I think that you're, you're doing just that through this hunger strike. And, and, um, I fully believe that the universe and the Bay and everything is, is, is speaking to you. Um, you know, I also think that a, a lot of people, including myself, you know, I've never done a hunger strike. And so I, I just want to know, like, what does a hunger strike entail? What does it look like for you? Like, how do you how do you even do a hunger strike? Uh, well, I, I do what 
first time I did a hunger strike, and like I said, I didn't know the first thing. I never read anything. It's like, but it was something I could do, and I didn't need money. I didn't need support. All I need was myself. It didn't cost a penny. It's like it was just doing it, and you go without food. I was like, that's what you do. That's like, and I and I did two weeks on a hunger strike on a shrimp boat in Lavaca Bay with no cell phone, no support, very little media, and uh, uh, and, and the only one that knew I was on a hunger strike was Formosa, and and regularly, I mean, like almost every day, they would. The uh, uh, kind of like he was regulatory affairs at Formosa. He would bring over about seven engineers and all these black suits, black ties, and they they would climb on the boat and then look at me and he'd say, "Look at that woman." He said, "And she's stupid." And then he would say, "Oh, please, Diane, please get off that." <laughs> <laughs> time he left me a hamburger and French fries. He did. He did do that. And it's like <laughs> so. So it's. So I, I started knowing exactly nothing. And then I have since learned it helps to have a cell phone so you can communicate. And, uh, uh, and I've also learned when, uh, because it, I did long, I, I get uh, the length of them kind of increases. And uh, I know that you don't drink just water, you got to have electrolytes because if you ever get your potassium messed up, uh, you are a sick puppy. And so mm-hmm. I take uh, water with electrolytes because I like to keep it real simple and real clear because there's all types of hunger strikes. You can do uh, juice only, you can do, you know, I, re- I remember when I want a hunger strike and uh, in Washington D.C., and I think was bring the troops home. It was the Iraq War, and uh, mm-hmm. well, a lot of people were doing hunger strikes, and a lot of people are, are not inclined to do water only, and they were doing what they call liquid fast, and that was anything they could put in a blender. <laughs> oh yes, you know, uh, not to get into this story, but I've broken my jaw before, so I'm familiar with that diet. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you got a broken jaw. I had a sister at the same time. She did. Yeah, and it was an involuntary hunger strike. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, there are those that uh, that have. So there's all types, and but I just keep it real, real simple. And, uh, and like I said, uh, the first three or four days are the worst. I think on this one, uh, the third day, I was uh, I felt uh, really bad. I was like, oh. No, I can't keep feeling this at uh, this stage of the game, you know, and I felt well, like maybe it was my age because I was the last time I did a hunger strike. It was 62 days and I mean, 60. I was 62 years old and now I'm 72 and it was I guess 10 years can make a difference. But after I uh, I didn't have any electrolytes. So when I took some electrolytes, uh, it's, it's, it's like you're not hungry. It's like uh, you even wonder if you're really on a hunger strike. I mean, that's how it feels like. It's like it's like maybe you had something for dinner and you're it's about an hour later and you're like totally full. You're satisfied. I mean, not full, but you're satisfied. So you're not the least bit hungry. And like people think you're, you're always you know, they always accuse me of seeking. They always say apples. It's like, why? On God's- <laughs> well, you did say there is a taco truck right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. They brought up that taco truck. <laughs> Sneaking over there. Just it's like the irony of having a taco truck. But, uh, <laughs> so you just, you know, and when, and you know, around day 28, the year, you do start start feeling it you get uh your legs get weak and uh, and your mouth gets really dry and also your voice i guess it dries out so it gets my voice is getting lower and lower and uh but uh i think the longest i've ever did was i did 58 days went up to shut down guantanamo i did it in dc with a bunch of uh, 
veterans for peace and uh, so i've i've been out there i've been out there and this one is um people keep bringing up my age <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a, a set amount like how do you how do you know when it when it's over like, do you have a set amount of days that you go for? Is it until you accomplish your goal? No. I, when I do a hunger strike, I do it with intention and I put it out there and I kind of release it. You know, I I, I, I think uh, being too grasping with it somehow uh, messes the intention up. You kind of got to let the ego go and just set it out there put your intentions mm-hmm. there, but you also release it. And, uh, and it always comes, it always comes, it comes back sometimes in ways you never expected. And, uh, and sometimes it surprises you and gives you exactly what you wanted. So it's, it's, to me, it's just amazing. It's an amazing spiritual journey it is that's what it's like for me it is yeah and so will you share more about the reasoning for this hunger strike and and why you're out there uh the reason why i'm doing it is because and and it was just sprung rather sudden on this whole county here is that you know it's just suddenly in the paper that a uh oil export uh pipeline company nobody had ever heard of said he was going to put a billion dollars into an oil export and that he needed the channel dredged uh the matagorda ship channel dredged so he can bring his big super x ships in here to bring all of this permian uh and eagle ford crude oil put it in there and ship it you know out to africa out to uh uh europe and it's like and it's all for money and the navigation district agreed to it it went become a party with them and it was because they the uh oil export max mystery was paying for it i mean he had a foreign punter and it's like i can put 360 million dollars down here and that meant the navigation district didn't have to because I guess generally with with the core when you're doing a project it's like 60-40 and 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 the navigation district does I mean the the core of engineers does 60 part and 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 the core of engineers is I mean the navigation district is supposed to do the other and they didn't have the money I mean they would have to raise taxes and they are not going to raise taxes. So, I mean, here's this guy going to flung down this money. And so, I mean, they started pushing it through. They got it authorized by Congress in uh, 2000, it was 2020, December, in the last month of the Trump administration. And uh, from there on out, they are pushing it like crazy. The Corp, the Corbin engineers uh, process right now. They said, we're on a deadline. We don't have time. Uh, they said they will only tweak something. They will not change anything. And when uh, the public asked about anything about uh, Mercury, they said they are not discussing. This is a process and check check page 260 in our EIS. And, and, uh, and so they're taking that two-year project and they're making it four months and Max Midstream's uh, uh, air permits for his little tanks, they're expedited too. So they are pushing this thing as hard and as fast. And they are, there was a environmental impact study in 2009 and then they did a new one. And it, I mean, it's a complete reversal. And I mean, it's like the most harmful way you can do a dredging. It's like Instead of uh, uh, putting it on, like on the uh, east side of a, when you're dredging a ship channel, you know, typically they would put it on the east side, which is away from the town, away from the archeries, away from this. Well, uh, well, gee whiz, the wind was 
on back into the channel. And so, oh, and so what they're going to do is put it on the town side and it's going to smother 700 acres of oysters. It's going to disrupt the whole mercury contamination uh, because we got a mercury superfund site. It's going to allow the width that they're digging nine feet down and 150 feet wide. It's going to allow all of the salt water to come into a base system. It will totally change the ecosystem of the bay. I mean, you can't just bring in a rush, a constant rush of salt water from the sea into a into a, a, a base system that's got a very delicate a balance of salt in it. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. It's crazy what they want to do. And it will, uh, you know, of that, that, uh, that, $50 million settlement we got with Formosa, we put $20 million into a sustainable fishery co-op with multiracial fishermen, with the Vietnamese, with the Hispanic, with the working class white fishermen. And it's a co-op. I mean, where they work together, where the middleman is gone, where they have their own fish house, their own docks, where they, they can... Uh, you know, devise a new sea uh, farm that they want to to produce, you know, like maybe squid or a different type of fish. They can make a picking plant if they wanted to. It would mm-hmm. revive an entire community. I mean, an entire community that is dead now. And fisheries and fishermen that had no dock space, no fish house to put their their uh, catch, no place to get ice or fuel. I mean, if they did go out and they caught maybe 100 pounds, they would have to sit on the side of the road and sell them. So, so they're trying to do this in the middle of all of this dredging and these huge ships they want to bring in. And, and, and not only is it this one uh, Max Midstream is there's a whole line of them just sitting and waiting, and they want to make this little bay system just like Ingleside that is saturated with industry and all of this stuff. I mean, they they want to destroy it. That's what they want to do. Yeah, and, and um, I, I I might have missed this, but has the has the dredging started? No, what the what they got the like I said they got the authorization in December. And what they're doing now is uh, they're trying to get a bid on doing some samplings to determine they know what side they know basically where they're going to put it, but they want to know kind of ex- the exact placement. Are you know are you going to put it up a little further uh, south here? Or are you going to put it a little bit further east here or something like that? So they're that's all they're determining. And uh, and I mean it's I mean even. You know, I'm, I'm in this in this community. I'm, I'm considered a bit of a a radical. They kind of <laughs> <laughs> consider me a bit of a radical, and so even the very conservative, but very 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 bright people, but they're you know they're definitely a lot more conservative than me. Even they have come out and said, at the very least. The Corps of Engineers have to, has to do an environmental, uh, uh, a supplemental environmental impact study. They have mm-hmm. to do this. I mean, they're they're going to make a colossal mistake here, and it's like nothing stopping it. I mean, nothing. There's nothing stopping it. So I, I, it's like when you got nothing, when you got little support, when you when you've got a very little voice, you I do the thing that I can do. And this is what I did. And I put this intention out and just, you know, and we uh, we put a, a letter similar to what the uh, Lavaca Bay and Matagorda Bay Foundation put out. And uh, uh, we're asking to have it, uh, the authorization withdrawn. And at the most minimum, to have a supplemental environmental impact study, and we're asked Biden to uh, put the ban back on the exports. I mean, that's crazy. They, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Obama lifted it in 2015, 
and it was a Greenpeace um, expert who said the amount of crude oil from like the Permian Basin and the Eagle Fords and diverted to export has risen 750%. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. what do we do about climate change, you know, exporting it to other countries so they can burn it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a sad statement. So for people listening, I'm sure, I mean, myself included, how are, what, like, how and what are some ways that people can help support you and this effort in addition to getting the word out and sharing um, this, this story with others in their community? Uh, well, I know one way right now what they can do is uh, 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 there, there is a action website is called uh, Hunger Strike, Stop the Dredging and Stop the Oil Export. And it's on Facebook. And it has uh, kind of everything that uh, has been going on since uh, day one. But also uh, there is a uh, uh, action alert that just came out and we're trying to put pressure on the Army Corps of Engineers, and especially the one in Galveston, and it's um, a Captain uh, Timothy Bell, and uh, he's the one uh, that, you know, even our letters to Biden and all the different people, it was, uh, we sent one to Timothy uh, Bell at the Galveston uh, U.S. Corps of Engineers, and actually, the Corps, and we've researched this, they have the ability to withdraw that project. And they can also do an environmental, I mean, a supplemental environmental impact study. And that's what we're asking. I I cannot believe they would sit by and allow this to be done to this bay. I, I can't believe they would do that. Our listeners now have their call to action. So if you're listening to this, put it's time to put the pressure on. <laughs> yes, it definitely needs. They need to know there's a lot of people looking at it. You know, if they think nobody's looking at it, they're not going to pay attention to it. Yeah, and and so in addition to to supporting this effort, I'm I'm wondering how people can stay in touch and follow along with you and the hunger strike and your work moving forward. Uh, well, I, uh, like I said, for the, the duration of this um, um, hunger strike and for this issue here, they can uh, follow along on that um, uh, hunger strike to stop the dredging and stop the uh, oil export. So there will, there will be something, there's something new every day and when, when they need a new, uh, uh, you know, a need a new action, it will come out there. And usually press releases, anything we try to put on it. And me personally, uh, people can go to uh, Diane Wilson. I'm on Facebook and I post a lot of stuff there. I know I got a, a group, uh, the one that filed that lawsuit against Formosa, it was the San Antonio Bay uh, Waterkeeper. And people can uh, go to that. But I just, uh, and also I've got, if they're interested in all that pellet stuff, I've got almost all the documents on a website called uh, nomorenurdles.org. And uh, so if anybody wants to know what it looks like, what we did, the legal filings, and you know, all of that information, the judge ruling and all of that, that's in uh, on that website and they can go there too. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I wrap up each of my shows by asking my guests the same series of questions, starting with, uh, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so, uh, 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 what they call, uh, a person in their place like on the Texas Gulf Coast, and what I see is this fossil fuel addiction, even in the in the face of it becoming a dinosaur. It has to become a dinosaur, but it's like this, this last-ditch effort of all of this petrochemical and fossil fuel and exports development on the 
Gulf of Mexico, and it's like, to me, it's, uh, it's you know, we got to build back fossil fuel free. We got to do that, and we need help. The people on this on this Gulf Coast edges are being drowned. They are being drowned, and uh, mm -hmm. and we need help, and we have to, uh, you know. To me, that's that's what I see. I'm sure there's a lot of very very pressing ones, but uh, uh, that's what I see sitting and looking at it right now. It's kind of right in my view. It's hard to ignore. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what are you energized about moving forward? Uh, well, I always like to say that uh, I was cursed with enthusiasm. And it's like, it's <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I get, uh, I get excited about, I get excited about stuff and I tend to jump right in. And uh, uh, for me, it's like, uh, working to clean up this bay and i and i finally you know as, especially with uh winning that lawsuit and uh uh there's uh, there's been given uh, in a funny way a, a little bit more uh credits to when i say something so it's so it's like a uh, uh you 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 get an extra bump from things because uh, people have, you know, uh, because people have seen or heard that. So they, 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 they give me a, sometimes a lot more, a little bit more credit than, than I actually have. You know, it's kind of a, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like walking to, into a, one of these big meetings in uh, industry getting very nervous about it. And it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting very interesting to see that yeah and this uh this final one is a two-part question so starting with uh what is the best advice you've ever been given and then what advice do you have for our listeners uh, what's the best advice i was ever given yeah uh, oh well it was a uh actually you know a lot of times i've been called the, the unreasonable woman and actually, it was a uh, a professor. He used to be on the Texas Air Control Board in Texas. And then he was a zero discharge expert. And then he was a professor teaching a creativity at um, at one of those big universities up north. I forgot what it's called. But anyway, he gave me this slip of paper, and it was a uh, uh, a, a kind of a misquote of George Bernard Shaw and it is what I go by a lot and it's that uh, reasonable women uh, adapt to the world but an unreasonable woman makes the world adapt to them and they're <laughs> all progress so I do I totally believe that you have to be unreasonable i do i think i love that well behaved gets you nowhere and what advice do you have for our listeners uh and again it's uh, the, the best i can give and it's it's something i i read again it's a quote i heard and it's i think it was joseph campbell and let me see if i can say it and he said the purpose of life to find the resource of character to follow your destiny. <laughs> and it takes guts to follow your destiny. And I believe we all have a destiny. It sure does. Yes. And, and, and Diane, thank you so much for joining me today. I am just so glad that the universe brought us together and we were able to share this hour or so um you know discussing your experience and hearing about these issues and i'm just so so grateful for you and all the work that you've done you're doing and i'm sure you'll continue to do and um you know for the the listeners will continue to follow along with your journey and your hunger strike and keep everybody updated but you can consider this a standing invitation and an open invitation for you to come back because I, I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I loved it. I loved it. You were very easy to talk <laughs> with. Very easy. 
<laughs> well, yes, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to thank the listeners. If, if you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and other shows like it, uh, feel free to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And if you are on social media, you can connect with us on Facebook. We are the American Shoreline Podcast Network. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Coastal News 365. And you can connect with me personally on Instagram. I am Jenna Valente. And on Twitter, I am at Yenna Benna. So please find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. <laughs>